You can open to Luke 21. We are back at it this morning in Jesus' teaching on the side of the Mountain of Olives. And as you're turning there, uh, I was reading an article that was written on May 10th in the New York Times by an opinion columnist named Brett Stevens. And the question was, should we still be optimistic about America? And this was how he opened it. He said, the pessimism comes in many flavors. There is progressive pessimism. The country is tilting toward MAGA-hatted fascism, or a new version of The Handmaid's Tale. There is conservative pessimism. The institutions from primary schools to the Pentagon are all being captured by wokeness. There is Afro-pessimism. Black people have always been excluded by systemic, ineradicable racism. There is the pessimism of the white middle and working classes. The country and the values they've known for generations are being hijacked by smug, self-dealing elites who view them with contempt. There's also the pessimism of the middle. We are losing the institutional capacity, cultural norms, and moral courage needed to strike pragmatic compromises at almost every level of society. Zero sum is now our default setting. Everybody seems to be pessimistic. What should our attitude be? as the church? How should we be looking at things as believers? Should we be glass half full or glass half empty? And I'm really not just talking about America. I mean, when we look at the world, when we look at humanity, how should we feel? And so that question hangs over our time together this morning, and we'll get back around to it by the end. Uh, We are in Luke 21, verses 20 through 28. And so remember, as Jesus is teaching on the Mount of Olives, Uh, we discovered that this can be a tough passage to work through because Jesus is jumping around so much in his subject matter. In verses 5 through 9, we saw him talking about how the temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And then in verses 10 through 19, he's talking about how things are going to be up until the temple's destroyed, but it also seems like he's talking about how things will be until he returns. Then this morning, we'll see in verses 20 through 24, he's right back to talking about the destruction that's going to happen in Jerusalem. And then in verses 25 through 28, he jumps back and starts talking about his return again and what Christians should do until he returns in verses 29 through 38. Jesus is not jumping around because he's flighty or he's confused or he's trying to confuse us. He's jumping back and forth because he is drawing the attention of his audience to two specific points that are coming in history. The first one is going to come in 70 AD when the Romans come into Jerusalem. They besiege the city for about four years and then they are going to raise it to the ground. They are going to uh, lay waste to it. And so he wants them to think about that. This is the judgment that is coming down upon Jerusalem for their rejection of the Messiah. However, that is not the only event in play as he is teaching on the side of the Mount of Olives. Jesus is also uh, teaching us about his return. So he's talking about 70 AD and the destruction that's going to happen there, but he's also talking about his return because what's going to happen in Jerusalem in 70 AD is like a preview, a snapshot of the ultimate cataclysmic events surrounding his second coming. So that's why Jesus is going back and forth. It's not because he is chasing squirrels here or going down rabbit trails. He is very purposely going, this thing's going to happen and it's going to be a preview 
of this big thing that's going to happen when I return. This, this thing's going to happen in 70 AD. Big, it, it, it's a snapshot of what's going to happen when I come back. So that's how this passage moves, and we will see him talking about both of these uh, instances in history in, uh, in verses 20 through 28. So let me start reading for us Luke 21, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting, fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken." And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Let's pray. Father, we cannot understand spiritual things with natural eyes, so I pray that you would give us spiritual eyes to see, that your Holy Spirit, God, would be present in this place, helping us to understand the very word that he inspired uh, helping us to apply it to our hearts, um, helping us, Lord, to know how to deal with the signs of the times, to be able to discern them rightly, and to be able to have the right attitude as your people, as redeemed people, as people who identify with your name of love and grace and mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in verse 20, Jesus shifts from talking about how things are going to be until he returns to going back to talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. And he tells his people that when they see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then they will know that its desolation has come near. And this prophecy from Jesus was fulfilled in the most gruesome way in 70 A.D., for four years, the Romans besieged the city of Jerusalem. They blockaded it. They shut the Jewish people up within the walls. According to the historian Josephus, more than a million Jewish people were killed. Some of the stories of what the Jewish people had to do inside of the city just to survive are so horrific that I can't even share them from the pulpit. And I have shared some, some little pieces of history from the pulpit at times that are pretty gruesome uh, to read. And this is one where I was like, man, I don't even think I can read that. You can ask me afterwards if you want to know, I guess. But the bottom line is the Romans were starving them out, and they were absolutely desperate. And as the people starved to death and they died inside the city, they started to toss the bodies over the city walls to get the decaying bodies out of the city. And things were so silent within the city that they said you could hear the thieves laughing as they were stripping the bodies outside the walls and, uh, and taking the possessions for their own. During a siege like this, when it first started... It might have been tempting for the people of uh, Judea to think, well, actually, I should run to Jerusalem. 
Because if I run to Jerusalem, we've got a fortified city there. We've got walls, and I can find a place to hide within the city, and there's markets within the city, and there's people within the city, and maybe if we're going to band together and take these Romans on, the city is the place I want to be. But Jesus tells his followers not to go there. Then let those who are in Judea, he says in verse 21, flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are uh, out in the country enter it. Jesus knows how bad it's going to get inside the city. He knows how ugly it's going to be. He knows that the people are going to uh, starve inside the city. He knows that the Romans are going to do terrible things to them. And so he tells his people, don't run into the city, you run into the mountains. And if you're out in the country, you stay in the country. Don't come to the city. He doesn't want his people there because Jesus knows an intense level of judgment is about to fall on Jerusalem. Jesus understands that he's not just predicting like some unfortunate political events that will end with the Jewish people suffering. He knows that he is predicting judgment. He is talking about the judgment that's going to come down upon Jerusalem, which is why he says in verse 22, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. God sent his Messiah to Jerusalem, and the people there are rejecting him, rejecting him to the point that they are going to turn him over to the Romans to be crucified, to be slaughtered, to be murdered, and now God's judgment is coming down upon the nation as a result. This shouldn't be a surprise because the Old Testament had warnings about what would happen if the people broke covenant with God. Hosea 9 verse 7 says, The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. And so in that passage, Hosea is warning Israel that judgment is coming down upon him because of how they've treated the prophets. Right? The man of the spirit, the prophet, is being counted as crazy, as being mad, as being a fool because of the iniquity and the sin in the hearts of the Israelites. They are suppressing the truth so they can continue on in their own unrighteousness and in the process are rejecting and mistreating the prophets of God. And this is exactly what happens with the ultimate prophet of God, the Son of God in the flesh, Jesus. And so there are consequences for that rejection. There is judgment for Israel spurning the Messiah. They have transgressed the kindness of God and the holiness of God. And, and plus, in rejecting Christ, they are rejecting every prophet before him because Jesus is the fulfillment of all prophecy. And so if you reject him and his ministry, you are rejecting the ministry of Isaiah and the ministry of Zephaniah and Zechariah and Jeremiah and every other prophet that pointed to him. Solomon was also warned that the temple would be destroyed if Israel broke covenant with God in 1 Kings 9. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. He's talking about the temple. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples, and this house will become a heap of ruins." Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, why has the Lord done this to the land and to this house? That's what happened in 586 B.C. when the Israelites 
ignored the warnings of the prophets, and the temple was destroyed, and they were carried off into Babylonian captivity. And it happens again in 70 AD as a result of Israel rejecting the prophesied Messiah, except this time, instead of Solomon's temple being destroyed, it's Zerubbabel's temple that is being destroyed, the temple that was expanded upon by Herod. And lastly, Jesus warned of what would happen if they rejected him. Pastor David preached this passage uh, for us about a month and a half ago in Luke 20, starting in verse 9. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? So the planter is God the Father. The vineyard is Israel. The tenants represented the leadership of Israel. And as the prophets, the servants, are being sent into the vineyard, they're beating the servants. So what is the owner of the vineyard to do? He says, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. And so Israel rejected every prophet that was sent. And so God sent his son and they rejected him too. And now they will suffer judgment from the owner of the vineyard his patient wrath is going to come down upon them the vineyard will be given to others it was a warning to the leadership of israel it was a warning to the people of israel as a whole jesus was telling them to reject god is costly to reject god in the flesh is costly the intensity of the judgment is even more evident in verses 23 and 24 jesus says pregnant nursing women will find it unbearable I don't think that this is simply a reference to it being harder because of the responsibility of trying to have a child or the responsibility of trying to raise a newborn child up and nurse a newborn child. I think it goes deeper than that. I think Jesus is saying that the judgment's going to be so bad that the people in the society who should be filled with joy, expecting a new mothers, are actually going to be filled with sorrow and they're going to mourn that they brought a child into that situation. In Luke 23, verse 29, it says, For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. So there's going to be uh, great distress upon the earth. And we see that in verse 23 as well. There's going to be wrath coming down upon the people of Israel. To the naked eye, the distress would be blamed on the Romans for besieging the city and starving them out. But we know better. We know nothing happens outside of the control of God. We know God is the one behind the judgment. And in verse 24, we see the hard times for Jerusalem are just getting started. Because Jesus says that as Rome or as uh, Jerusalem falls by the sword, the Jewish people are going to scatter. That's true. That happened. He also says Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. 
And that happened as well, right? In 70 AD, 40 years before Jesus, uh, or 40 years after Jesus makes this prediction. But he doesn't stop there. He says this trampling will continue on until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, here's what I think is going on here. Jesus is saying Jerusalem will continue to be besieged until the Gentile mission is complete. I think that's what he means by the time of the Gentiles being fulfilled. And I think he's talking about a time that's right before his return. So in Romans 11, verse 25, Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So God has partially hardened Israel's heart, but not fully. And if you keep reading in Romans, Paul talks about this time where all Israel will be saved. And I think that that is referring to a revival among ethnic Israel before the second coming of Christ. That there is going to be, uh, the Gentile mission is going to be over, time of Gentiles are fulfilled, the Gentiles are going to come into the church, then there's going to be this Jewish revival that begins, and then Jesus is going to come back. I think that's what Paul is getting at in Romans 11. But until that time, Jerusalem will keep experiencing this kind of oppression. So the question is, was Jesus right about this? And of course he was. There is no city on this planet more contended for than the city of Jerusalem. There is no city that has been counted as the prize of war more often than the city of Jerusalem. For 2,000 years, people have been coming against it. In fact, in its history, Jerusalem has been destroyed twice, besieged 23 times, attacked 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times. Just this last April, we were seeing once again fighting erupting between the Jewish people and the Palestinian people in Jerusalem. Now, it's easy for us to sit here in 2022, you know, a couple thousand years removed from these events and read them pretty calmly, but the followers of Christ, as they heard these things, must have been so alarmed. I mean, everything that this man has ever told them was true. And now he's looking at them and he's saying, that city down there that you love and that temple in the middle of it that you worship in is going to be destroyed. And, and, and until I return, there are going to be nations just continuing to come against that city. But as scary as this was for them to hear, this was just a, a snapshot, a preview of what things would be like when Jesus returns. And so, as we get to verse 25, he is shifting his subject matter to talking fully about his second coming. And we know this because the language he's using to describe these cataclysmic events is apocalyptic in its nature. If you've been with us for our Revelation study on Wednesday nights, and, and then you read verses 25 through 28, you might be like, all right, I'm familiar with this language. I've seen this language recently, right? I mean, we've got total calamity in verse 25. This is how we know we've gone from talking about something that was going to happen in 70 AD to just Jerusalem to talking about a global judgment. Look at verse 25. Um, the heavens are going to be impacted sun, moon, and stars. The power of the heavens will be shaken, he says in verse 26. 
And so the heavens are impacted, the land, the earth itself is impacted, and those who live on it, there's distress in the nations in verse 25. In verse 26, people are fainting with fear and expectation over what is coming and what's going to happen. And then in verse 25, we've seen the heavens, we've seen the land, we see that the sea is going to be impacted. The sea is roaring with waves. This is a common picture of judgment in the scriptures. The cosmic order is melting down. Isaiah 34 is a chapter about God's judgment coming down upon the nations. Look how it's described. He says, All of the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. So so Isaiah, as he's talking about judgment, is talking about the stars rotting away and the sky rolling up. Right? The cosmic order is melting down under the judgment of God. Uh, the day of the Lord is described by Joel in this way. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Once again, the cosmic order is melting down. And then in Revelation 6, when the sixth seal is opened, and and when we get there on Wednesday night, you'll see that's the seal of final judgment. Once it's opened, the day of the Lord Joel talked about is upon the earth, and Jesus is returning to issue justice once and for all, and the same sort of language is found there. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And as the world is falling apart, and as the people are in fear, the end will come. That's what he's talking about in verse 27 when he says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. The title, Son of Man... And the words cloud and power and great glory should take us right to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, which is funny because, again, on Wednesday night, I told you this was going to be the summer of the apocalypse here at Seaford, okay? This past Wednesday night, we're in Revelation 1, and we saw language there very similar that took us right to Daniel 7. So here we are again. Let me read it. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So you can see the overlap between Luke 21, 27, and 28, and Daniel 7, 13, and 14, but there's also a difference. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man is approaching the Ancient of Days with the clouds. But in Luke 21, he's not approaching the throne of the Ancient of Days to receive his kingdom. In Luke 21, the Son of Man is coming to the earth in a single cloud to consummate the kingdom that he has received. And it's not in the secret of the heavenly throne room with the Father that this is taking place. It's out in the open for all of the world to see. And the dominion of the Son of Man that's established in Daniel 7 at the throne of the Ancient of Days is on display for the entire globe to behold as Christ returns in power and in glory. There will be no doubts on that day about who the King is. There will be no doubts on that day about who is in control. 
Yesterday, we laid our dear sister Sandra Jones to rest, and uh, at her graveside service, I joked, Sandra was always so concerned about politics. I said, the day that she resurrects from this grave, she will be no longer concerned about politics because she will have one king, and he will not need any more, um, and and, and he will be on his throne. There's not going to be any more elections. There's not going to be more deciding who's going to rule. It's going to be him always and forever. In the same way that the disciples of Christ in 70 AD were to lift their heads when Jerusalem is besieged and take that as a sign to flee to the mountains, the disciples of Jesus in the age of his return should straighten up and raise their heads because it will be a sign that their redemption is drawing near. It will be a sign that the hope that we have is coming to fruition. So for the world, the melting of the heavens and the roaring of the seas and the terror on the earth will be caused for fear. But for the church, when we see these things, we look at it and we say, everything that we've been hoping for is coming true. The story we've had faith in is coming true. And I think that Jesus' teaching here impacts what our attitude should be when we look at our country and when we look at society and when we look at the world. And I know I've kind of been hitting this, um, I've, I've been hitting this ball a little, uh, you know, a, a little bit more lately, um, especially as we have gone through this Olivet Discourse, but I think it's really important that we get our attitude right, because it impacts our witness. It impacts the way we represent Christ in the world, so we better get it right. It's easy for us to despair when we think about the world that we live in. I don't know if you knew this, I found this out this week. Anytime there's a shooter who kills four or more people, our government calls that a mass shooting. Four or more people, not including the shooter themselves. Did you know there's been 300 in our nation this year? That not a single week has gone by without one? And I'm not even here to comment on the politics of it. I'm here to comment on the inhumanity of it. It's inhumane. It's violent. It is evil. Right? So... You look at that, it would be very easy to be pessimistic. On the other hand, maybe you could just be optimistically naive. Try to bury your head in the sand and act like everything's going to be okay. Try to numb yourself with well-wishing, with social media scrolling, with Netflix binging, with substances, and say, well, it's all going to work out, everybody will calm down. That sort of delusional finger-crossing might make you feel better in a moment, but it doesn't change the reality that things are rough. So as the church, I don't think we ought to be doing either one of these things. I think in light of Jesus' words here, when he says, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. Right As he talks about the hope that we have, I don't think that we should become... um, we should be overcome with despair. I also don't think we should be so naive as to think that everything is fine. We look at a passage like this today and we say our attitude is not despair and our attitude is not naivety. Our attitude is one of hope. It's hopeful. We're not a despairing people. We're not a naive people. We are a hopeful people because as bad as things may get, even Jerusalem in 70 AD levels of bad, Jesus has promised us he's going to return on the clouds with great power and glory. And this hope that we have is our witness in this world. Understand that. This hope that we have that he is going to return in the way that he says in verse 27, coming in a cloud with power and great glory, it is our witness to this lost world around us. 
1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. But don't forget the end of the verse. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So as we refuse despair and as we refuse being naive, our witness will stand out against the backdrop of the world's despair and the world's naivety. And then when they look at us and they want to know the reason for our hope, how can you be a hopeful people in a time like this? Our answer is the Son of Man is coming on the clouds. So that's our charge. Don't despair over the state of things. What is your despair going to get you? Also, don't be naive and act like everything's fine. Instead, place your hope in the return of the Redeemer and be ready to gently and respectfully give a defense for the hope that is within you when the world wants to know why you're so hopeful in the first place. And I think that this hope will put us in a position to have the testimony that we need if we're going to reach this world. You know, everybody's angry. You ever noticed that lately? Everybody's mad, man. I think it's because most people have opted for despair and it's manifesting itself in anger. I, talk, I, I just mentioned, right, uh, pessimism or uh, optimism, despair or being naive. Most people I talk to, they're like, I'm not optimistic and I'm not naive. I'm despairing and everything is being destroyed. Woe is me. That's what I see more often than not. And that despair is working itself out in anger. Track me on this. Listen. This isn't me. Again, I'm just trying to track the narrative of what I've seen over the last, uh, you know, what what are we in, 14 years since Barack Obama took office. So let let me just run you through the narrative. Tell me if I'm wrong. Many people who would classify themselves as conservatives were angry after eight years of Barack Obama. They felt like he was a democratic socialist. They felt like he pulled the nation away from its values and left a large portion of the nation feeling like they were alienated. Many people who would classify themselves as liberals were angry after four years of President Donald Trump. They felt like his rhetoric and policies were dangerous and dragged the country towards authoritarianism. Now both sides are angry because one feels frauded out of an election and the other feels like justice hasn't been done regarding January the 6th. Plus, gas costs an arm and a leg. There's an ongoing battle over sexual ethics, and it's all just in time for another glorious set of midterm elections. And while the Internet has been such a source of good for so many things, right, that we could point to and say the Internet has given us this and this and all this is good, it is also a breeding ground for evil, right? The Internet, like many things, is a terrible master and a great servant. And it is a breeding ground for evil for some who have allowed the internet to become their master. Here's what the internet does. It allows people to find other people who think like them, enter into that echo chamber, shut the door tightly, air sealed, and then never have to deal with anybody else who disagrees with them again for the rest of their lives. And just stay over here in their echo chamber, saying things that bounce around with other people who agree with them who say those things. And then everybody in their echo chambers gets real tribalistic and angry, right? If this door ever opens, I'm going to kill the people on the other side. You know what I mean? That, that, that is the attitude we see. It used to be that when Americans were angry, we could at least be unified by our, our national narrative, right? 
We're revolutionaries. We pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. We went to war with the greatest empire on the face of the earth, and we won our independence. Even if we can't agree on anything, we'll get together on the 4th of July and eat all beef hot dogs, and we'll shoot fireworks off up into the air and watch some baseball and eat apple pie, and, and, and we'll be happy Americans for at least one day. You can't even get that anymore. Because there's some people who say that the 4th of July is steeped in racism and shouldn't be celebrated and all this stuff. This divisive anger that exists in our culture has created an environment where we no longer seek any common ground with the people we disagree with. The age of outrage requires you eradicate the person that you disagree with. They've got to go. You say, why are people like this? Listen to me. The world's fighting like this because they don't have eternal hope. If this life is all there is, then the stakes couldn't be higher. It has to be a zero-sum game. Worldly power and influence must be contended for, every inch of it. So when children die in a shooting, there's no time to mourn. you got to saddle up. Figure out how this death, death is helping you along in your ideological battle against the other side. Because if this life is all there is, those children are gone now, the battle must be won in the here and now. Does that sound brutal and godless? It is. And that is the mindset we're seeing in culture. But as the church, we don't look at the here and now for the solution. We look to the clouds. We look to the future. We look for the Son of Man to appear as the earth itself is melting down. And that's where we place our hope. That's our narrative. That's what unifies us. And that is the story that protects us from despair-fueled outrage and frees us to choose a different path in the age of outrage. The path, as Peter put it, of gentleness and respect. The words of the Bible hasn't changed. Our mandate to follow them hasn't changed. I know it's tempting to say, well, the lost people are mad and they're ready to fight and we're Christians and we ought to fight back. And we do need to fight. But as hopeful people that are not despairing, we don't fight with the same tools as they do. Tools of outrage and vitriol. We fight with the tools of gentleness and respect. You know what the world needs? I think Burke Bacharach said this. It needs a little love. It needs a little love. But what he didn't say, what I'll say, what Jesus said, okay? Not, not just any love, right? Love packed with empathy. That's, that's what the world needs. Love packed with empathy. Here's the good news. You've got a commandment from your Lord. He summed up the entire horizontal aspect of the law, right? Just look at the Ten Commandments. Uh, the first four deal with how, how we deal with God. They're vertical. The last six are horizontal, how we deal with the people around us, starting with our moms and dads and going to our neighbors. And Jesus sums up that aspect of the law and says, love your neighbor as yourself. That is a command to love with empathy. It's, it's built into our faith. It's the teaching of our Lord. When we love our neighbors, we love them as ourselves. We love them and we, we listen to them. We, we try to understand them. And then we plead with them to receive Christ. The only way to truly love someone as your uh, your, as yourself, to love your neighbors yourself, is to empathize with them. Try to understand who they are. Now, don't get me wrong. You might get hatred back as you do this. 
Jesus told us that would be the case last week, right? But if we're hated for loving in the way Jesus told us to, loving from a place of gospel hope, then we're blessed because we're suffering for his namesake. But listen to me. If you're hated for acting just like the world, you're not hated for the sake of Christ. You're hated for the sake of your own flesh. Because it's your flesh that led you to act like the world, not the words of Jesus. So don't wear it as a badge of honor, I'm suffering for the name of Christ. If you're out there being a jerk like everybody else is being a jerk, you're suffering because you're being a jerk, not because you're identifying with the name of Jesus. It's a big difference. If we suffer because we love our neighbors as ourselves and we plead with them to receive Christ and they look at that and they say, well, I know what comes with all that. And because I know what comes with all that and I, and I know the worldview behind what you're saying, I hate that and I want nothing to do with it. If that's the rejection we get, we receive that and say, I'm suffering for his name's sake. But if we suffer just because we're answering outrage with outrage, that's the fault of your flesh. He's going to come back. Jerusalem in 70 AD gave us a preview. You know he's coming back. You know the Son of Man from Daniel 7 is going to make things right, so you don't have to despair. You don't have to express your sadness through rage. We get to do something different. We get to express our hope through love. The world has never seen this. Not this world we're living in right now. Everywhere they go. If, if you try to watch sports media, everybody's mad. LeBron James is the greatest player ever. Why are you so angry about it? It's a sports opinion. You know what I mean? But they're shouting at people. You flip over to Fox News or CNN, and there's people on there. Joe Biden, Joe Biden. You know, everybody's yelling. Everybody's red-faced. Everybody's angry. Everyone is expressing despair through rage. We get to step into the scene and say, I'm going to show you my hope through love. It's going to be radically different if you live that way. Radically different. You might not win all the political battles you want to win, but is that the kingdom that should be first anyways? Express your hope through love. It will transform our neighborhood. It can transform this world. And it will be a powerful witness for the church. And it will be blessed by the Spirit. Because it's His words that tell us to live this way. And as He blesses it, He'll empower the witness. And just read the book of Acts and see what happens when the Spirit of God empowers the witness of the church lives change the numbers are added to and so it's the best way we can let people know it's the only way we can let them know if we're heralding the return of christ with the heart of christ no despair no rage no naivety just hope let's pray together father god i pray that um you would help us not to give in to the, to the culture, Lord. When we're being reviled, 